us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lundloop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, money, and life. Today I thought we'd do something different. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of a bank run you've probably never heard about. If we were to do a post-mortem on the Silicon Valley Bank, there's no doubt that the reason it failed was directly related to the speed at which depositors fled, withdrawing $42 billion in less than 24 hours. And that, of course, has left authorities and regulars confronting a new risk, the social media bank run. The fact that people can communicate so much more quickly and that information is transmitted instantaneously has changed the dynamic of bank runs. And it's changed the way we have to think about liquidity and how we manage risk. But today, I want to speak read. (laughs) That's me speak reading combination of me reading a script and speaking about a different bank run and how an investor, through sheer determination, was able to outrun the technology of his time and rescue his life savings before the collapse. And just a small warning here, the story I'm about to tell you draws on both contemporary and historical accounts, much of which comes from a piece published by the Long Riders Guild. So some of the terms may be a bit outdated, Some references may offend our current sensibilities, but I thought it was important to keep them to preserve the authenticity of the tale. All right, here we go. Upon leaving Adams and Company's express office on the Sacramento Riverfront one frosty morning in February 1855, French-Canadian cattle buyer Louis Remy was in a content and peaceful mood as he tucked the agent's receipt in the pocket of his buckskin jacket. Remy had just deposited $12,500 in gold slugs to his account. These were the profits from selling cattle to the meat-hungry miners working in the camps along the mother load. And as he looked up at the cold winter sun, he wondered how many of those 49ers could say they had made that much money for just two months' worth of labor. For context, $12,500 in 1855 was roughly equivalent to a half a million dollars today, and it represented almost all of Remy's net worth. An hour later, seated at breakfast, Remy grudgingly paid a dollar for an old copy of the Daily Union, which had just reached Sacramento by riverboat. A dollar for an outdated newspaper struck him as exorbitant, until he looked at the front page and realized that he had just made the most important investment of his life. A story dateline St. Louis was headed, Adams and Company bankrupt. All branches locked up by receivers. Depositors face heavy losses. Adams and Company was originally started by Alvin Adams in Boston in 1840. Over time, they began serving other areas of the Northeast, and in late 1849, they expanded into San Francisco in order to transport the newly discovered California gold on steamers twice a month through Panama to New York City. Adams and Company also purchased gold directly and entered into banking relationships with miners that included issuing bills of exchange. And it was this same Adams and Company Express Banking House 
in which Remy had just deposited his life savings. Jumping from his chair, he sprinted out of the cafe and ran back to the bank. He had to withdraw his money before the news reached the branch. But he was too late. By the time he arrived, a crowd of depositors were already swarming around Adam's door, which was now padlocked, with a sheriff's deputy, shotgun at the ready, standing guard. Despair shot through Remy. He thought about trying to reach the Marysville branch or any other outlying Adam's office ahead of the catastrophic news, but he knew he'd never make it in time. He stared at his deposit receipt, on which, in the lower-hand corner, was depicted a gold miner. Centered at the top of the receipt was an image of Adams & Company's flagship branch in downtown San Francisco, below which was written, This is to certify, and then there was a blank spot in which the name Louis Remy was written in black ink, has deposited with us a sealed package containing, and then another blank space in which was written $12,500. In gold, deliverable on return of this endorsed note. However, as of this moment, the receipt was not worth the paper it was written on. Perhaps it could serve as a torch to light my cigar, thought Remy. But as he was rolling the worthless paper into a taper, he suddenly heard a frenzied depositor talking on the fringes of the crowd. If only we could be living in Portland, Oregon. The steamer Columbia just left the Golden Gate this morning, carrying the news up north. The Adams office in Portland won't shut down until the ship gets there. Another bearded man grunted, But Portland is over 700 miles away. Might as well be on the moon. Remy thrust the receipt back in his pocket. Could he do it? Was it humanly possible for a rider going over land to beat an ocean-going steamer to Portland? But it was worth a shot. There was no other way the news could reach the sparsely settled Northwest as there were no telegraph wires and no Pony Express mail service. What have I got to lose, he thought, except my life savings. Twenty minutes later, Remy was on a paddle steamer heading up river to Knight's Landing. At the river port, he borrowed a fast horse from Knight himself, the baronial pioneer, and started north, Portland bound. Twenty miles on his way, the now desperate Remy swapped his spent horse for another and hammered on. Near the Marysville Buttes, he made his fourth change of mount, and now ten hours out of Sacramento, he was galloping through the Red Bluff as if the devil himself were after him. Darkness was closing in when Remy sighted Mount Shasta's snow-covered twin peaks under the stars. Halting at a freighter's camp, he said he was chasing a horse thief, and that was good enough for still another relay mount. He reached Clear Creek by the dawn's first light, but that's where the wagon roads petered out. Nothing but Indian trails and obscure game paths from here on to Oregon, he thought. All that day he pushed on, stealing horses and leaving tired substitutes behind at the infrequent homesteads he passed. And by the afternoon, he was bucking through hawk-deep drifts of a snowstorm. Remy had no way of knowing it, but he was holding his own with the steamer Columbia, which had two stops to make on the coast, one at Humboldt Bay and another at the mouth of the Rogue River to disembark soldiers destined for Indian fighting duty. Seventy hours after he'd left Knight's Landing, sleeping in the saddle, snatching food where he could, Remy sent his lurching pony into the mining camp of Eureka. Four hours later, north of the Klamath River, he spotted a rock cairn through the swirling snowflakes. He'd reached the Oregon line. 
From here on, it was dangerous country, as the Modoc Indians were on the warpath. By the time he reached Jacksonville, sheer exhaustion forced him to take four hours out for sleep. Then he crossed the Rogue River on a Pioneer Ferry and continued riding relentlessly onwards. Remy was pushing through the perpetual twilight of the Oregon Timberlands when Indian war whoops broke out. But, by some miracle, he escaped unscathed from a sleet of musket balls and flint-tip rogue arrows and came, more dead than alive, to the settlement of Winchester on the Umpequa. He had nearly 200 man-killing miles yet to go, and the blizzard was worsening. Fortunately, it changed to a cold drizzle when he reached the valley of Yunkala. There, a whiskered pioneer named Jesse Applegate gave him a fresh horse, and Remy was again on his way, making Eugene by daybreak, the fifth sunrise he'd seen on this epical ride, with only six hours of sleep to his credit. By noon of the sixth day, after precious time wasted retracing lost trails, Remy was ferrying the Williamette in Milwaukee, and by early afternoon, he was leading his horse into the riverfront street of Portland Town. Out in midstream, he saw an ocean steamer dropping anchor. What boat is that, monsieur? He asked a passerby. The Columbia, out of Frisco. Say, you look like you've been to hell and back. I have, gasped Remy as he stumbled along the muddy street to a false-fronted building carrying the magic name Adams Express. Inside, barely able to hang onto the counter, he presented his Adams voucher, signed by the Sacramento agent W.B. Rochester, to the Portland representative, Dr. Steinberger. This seems in order, sir, Steinberger said. However, I must make a charge of one half of one percent for cashing it. Bien, bien, the stockman whispered. However, I am a cattle buyer, and I have to have my funds in gold. Five minutes later, Remy had his gold, 40 pounds of it in $50 slugs. And as he staggered out, he nearly collided with Ralph Meade, the purser from the Columbia, who was bringing the news of Adam's failure to Oregon. And not one Portland depositor recovered a penny of his money. Now that's a great story, but you, like myself, might be thinking, is this really true? Did this really happen? I dug a little bit to see if I could definitively figure out if this was true. I, I couldn't really get a yes or no. However, the story is a part of many historical societies' documentation. So I would say there's probably a good chance some of this is true. However, what's really interesting is the way there are different endings to the story, depending on where you look. And I found this one ending that's really different from the first one. And, you know, here Remy rides like a bat out of hell for 665 miles. But in this version, once he gets to town, he seems a little more relaxed and lackadaisical. Let me read it to you right here. Monday found Remy at Milwaukee, and the ferryman's son got him across the swollen Willamette. The ride to town was exceedingly muddy, but by one o'clock he had reached Stewart's stable and put away his horse. He asked, is the steamer in from Frisco? So, you know, in this version, you know, Remy's just like, hey, I'd put my horse away and, hey, oh, is uh, the steamer in from Frisco? You know, the one that's bringing the news that's going to financially ruin me for life. <laughs> it seems a lot more uh, relaxed than this one. No, replied the hotel clerk, but we look for her today. Where is, it Adam's, where is Adams and Company Bank? asked Remy. The hotel clerk directed him and he walked around to the bank. Dr. Steinberger was the agent and had just returned from lunch. 
Can you cash a certificate of deposit for me from Sacramento? It's on your bank, said Remy. I guess so, said the doctor. The doctor seems a little grumpier in this one. We charge half of 1% exchange for all sums over $1,000 and 1% on all below that. 12,000 and a half, replied Remy. I've bought a band of cattle and the longer I wait to pay for them, the worse off I am. So Remy's trying to really emphasize that he needs the money now. The doctor examined the certificate, which bore the signature of W.B. Rochester, agent of Adams and Company at the California Capitol. There could be no doubt of its genuineness. He counted out the money to Remy and was chuckling over being able to sell $12,000 worth of exchange on San Francisco without shipping a dollar's worth of dust or coin. So Dr. Steinberger is kind of a dick in this one. Remy went around to his hotel and deposited the money in the safe. He came back and told the doctor, you better save yourself. So Remy kind of a good guy, right? He, he gets his money then he goes back to tell the doctor. But the doctor, being the dick he is, goes, what do you mean? Asked the doctor. I mean that your bank has failed, said Remy, and everything is attached in San Francisco and Sacramento. I have ridden from Sacramento since Tuesday noon and killed a dozen horses, or pretty near. You'll find I'm right when the steamer gets in. Ridiculous, said the doctor. I imagine him like throwing his spectacles off. Ridiculous. You might as well talk of Page Bacon and company failing. Well, said Remy, they failed first, and that is what started the run on your bank. Bah, now I know you are crazy, sneered the a-hole doctor. Bang, rang out a gun, and looking towards the river, they saw two brig-rigged masts approaching the city. It was the Columbia, with Captain Dahl on the bridge, with Billy Gladwell, the river pilot, standing by his side. However, before the ship had got her lines fast to the dock, a constable had served a writ of attachment on the bank of Adams and Company at the suit of Ralph Meade, the purser of the steamer, who had $950 in the rotten bank. The depositors never got anything after that, and although the local bank stood the run, the town got a pretty severe shock one way or the other. So basically, I, I read that as Ralph Meade was, I don't know, Somebody, ah, somebody somewhere, he had a lawyer on that ship that before they could give him the news of uh, Adams Bank f failing, he ran to the bank and attached the $950, I guess, secured it so that Ralph Mead could get it. So Ralph Mead was a pretty smart guy. Again, we don't really know if this story about Remy is true. But what we do know is that the Adams and Company Bank did fail. And I want to read a quick excerpt from the Sacramento Daily Union newspaper dated February 24th, 1855. Because I think, A, it's fascinating how this was covered, but more importantly, how they talk about the technology of the day and how the news was disseminated. All right, now, just remember, this is a little old-timey newspaper speak, so it might be a, a little stilted. Scarcely had the shock occasioned by the suspension of the banking house of Page, Bacon, and Company been experienced, before this community was again astounded by the announcement that the world-renowned banking and express firm of Adams & Company had closed their doors. Crowds immediately collected about their establishment, on the walls of which were posted the following notices. Adams & Company have been obliged to suspend for a few days, and A.A. A. Cohen of San Francisco has been appointed receiver for the benefit of depositors. 
The express matter of Adams and Company will be found at the office of Wells Fargo and Company. Hmm. The, the office of the latter firm was immediately besieged by depositors, great and small, who commenced withdrawing their deposits, and the run continued until 12 o'clock noon, when the subjoined notice was posted on their door. We have paid out all our coin and bullion, Wells Fargo Company. The express office, however, of this firm remained open throughout the day. All right, so now we go on to their perception of this. It is utterly impossible to convey any adequate idea of the panic pervading the community growing out of these financial reserves. Uh, sorry, these financial reverses. They are the universal topic of conversation in the hotels, saloons, stores, and private dwellings. Everybody is more or less affected by them. The poor classes grievously so. The suspensions of the express companies will be more seriously felt throughout the mining sections of the state than those of other houses. Thousands upon thousands of depositors have placed their little all, I don't know what that means in quotes, in their hands on deposit or for remittance to their homes or friends abroad. So this is one of the larger bank collapses in the history of California. In fact, it may have been the largest at the time. Little did they know what was coming down the pike. But this is the part that's really interesting, where they talk about how fast the news spreads. Already have the magnetic wires given convincing proof that, quote, bad news travels fast. And our telegraphic dispatches in today's issue afford unmistakable evidence that a panic unexampled in its intensity prevails throughout the mining communities. And the excitement, we fear, has not reached its climax, inasmuch as the many mining depositors who dwell at a distance from the stations which are in telegraphic communication with the cities seldom visit the settlements except on the Sabbath. Tomorrow, therefore, Scenes of excitement may be witnessed, even more thrilling than those already chronicled. Thus far, we are pleased to perceive that neither in the cities nor in the country has there been serious outbreaks to disgrace us in the eyes of the world abroad. In one or two instances, firms which had closed were compelled to reopen, but physical force did not amount to violence in any instance so far as we are advised. And I find it fascinating that they're already talking about technology, about the magnetic wires that are making sure that bad news travels fast. Of course, they have no idea <laughs> what lays ahead in the future. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on, um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelungloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.